Ozil. Marca Mesut Ozil. Arsecast Extra. Hello there, welcome to another Arsecast Extra. As always, with James from Gunner Blog. Fuck, you know, good morning, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, how many times this season have we said, oh, it's it's not a goodly morning? I think there have been more badly than goodly mornings, it seems, certainly in 2017. Yeah, the last couple of months have been a bit grim in that regard, and this is not a particularly good morning either after what happened last night at, at Selhurst Park. I, you know, it feels like we've got to just get straight into it. There's no room for idle chit-chat. There's no room for friendly greetings or or, or uh, fripperies, as you might call it, about crisps or biscuits or whatever else that's going on in our lives because this, sure. this one feels a bit all-consuming. It does. I mean, you know, I was watching Sky's coverage last night and when you find yourself agreeing with every word Jamie Carragher is saying, uh, you know that you're in dire straits. That is very true. I was, you know, I'm always a little bit sceptical of of watching punditry, particularly after a game. But what struck me was Carragher, it was almost like he personally felt affronted by what he'd seen from Arsenal like he's clearly not an Arsenal fan he played for Liverpool he's a boyhood Everton fan but he looked at that Arsenal side and and was actually annoyed by what he saw just for I guess from a a professional point of view but also he understood I think very um very succinctly what the concerns that that fans have are you know he talked about the Theo Walcott interview where he said Theo Walcott said oh well you know that's that's not Arsenal. That's not the Arsenal that we should be. And he goes, well, you know, you know, it actually is. That is what Arsenal are. And yeah, it was it was pretty much all spot on from him. Well, I think it's, as you say, it's less an affinity with Arsenal and more just the fact that Carragher, whatever you may think of him as a guy, was a a, a very good pro. And I think what we saw from Arsenal last night was was bordering on unprofessional. It was kind of an abdication of their responsibilities on the pitch, reflecting the abdication of responsibility that's been going on off the pitch for some time now. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's impossible to separate the things. It really is. You can't look at what's happening on the pitch and think that it's got nothing to do with what's happening elsewhere. At this point, it is absolutely ludicrous to try and suggest that the two things are separate or can exist in in different spheres or realms. It's all tied in. It's from top to bottom of this football club. Really, it is. Mm. You know, um, I don't know how many times we've spoken about it over the last number of months on the podcast about how there's been a lack of leadership, a lack of decisiveness, this uh, situation with Arsene Wenger that has been allowed basically to fester. It's not like something that they, you know, they're teasing us with, ooh, this is exciting, this could happen. You know, it's, it's a boil that is festering away. And we saw, we saw the great big glumpy wet puss of it on the on the pitch against Crystal Palace on on uh, Monday night last night it was just uh I don't know what it was I mean it, it was inevitable almost yeah that's it I mean it was it was half of you want to say it's shocking and then the other half of you saw the West Brom game 
So yeah. <laughs> it isn't that shocked, you know? I mean, it was similarly limp, similarly lifeless. I mean, the displays were actually pretty similar. And I suppose what's really frustrating is that we had a little bit, I don't know, it, I think it would have been an exaggeration for anyone to say that we turned a corner by drawing over City and beating mm. West Ham. But there were some signs of life, at least, some shoots of recovery. And then we went away from home and we just were back to our... Our, our, our absolute worst selves. I mean, mm. our record on the road this year is appalling. Mm. Yeah, I mean, in, in 2017 alone, we've conceded three against Bournemouth, three against Liverpool, three against Chelsea, three against West Brom, three against Crystal Palace, five in Munich. I know those were perhaps slightly different circumstances with a, with a, was it a, was it the red card in Munich or was it Koscielny going off in Munich? He went off injured. We did have 11 in Munich. Didn't I think we? it was injured. Mm-mm. Um, but, yeah. you know, it, it it speaks to a team that just isn't doing the basics. It's not doing what it should be doing. It isn't functioning the way that it should be functioning. Uh, you know, uh, midfield, I saw you tweet about midfield offering no protection to the back four. But, you know, th- these are professional footballers as well. There's got to be some kind of communication on the pitch there's got to be ways of sorting that out you know anybody who's played football at any level if you start getting torn apart by a team like Crystal Palace you start talking about what you need to do on the pitch and how you need to solve those problems these aren't idiots they know what football is about they know how to play football but there just seems to be a complete lack of willingness to do what needs to be done um, throughout those 90 minutes you know it was just yeah uh, it was chaos at times yeah. at the back. I, yeah. I like you, know, it. you think of that first first goal, the way that Monreal's left completely on his own on that side. I again, mean, again. They were just, again, exactly. It's been the story of his season, really. Uh, we were just pulled all over the place. I mean, there were times in the second half where Palace were kind of knocking it around the penalty box, looking to score a fourth and fifth goal. And, and I, you know, it was just staggering. I mean, the... The the freedom they were given to do that and the the lack of competition they faced from the Arsenal players. As you say, these are intelligent guys and talented guys. And, you know, Theo Walcott comes out after the game and says they wanted it more. I mean, it's a staggering admission for a professional to make, isn't it? Yeah, for the Arsenal captain on the night to say that they knew it from the first whistle that Crystal Palace wanted it more. Well, if you knew it from the first whistle, you address that. During the first half, you address it at half time. Like Arsenal didn't have a shot on target in the second half. Not a single shot on target. And you know what? It could have been worse. I remember sitting here, we were talking about the West Brom game and we were thinking, I think you said it could have been worse. We could have gone down 4-1-5-1 to West Brom. And last night, it could have been worse. Martinez made a couple of good saves. I remember Bellerin making one fantastic block from, from Ben Teke who had all the time in the world to to take the ball in our box, turn and shoot. The mm. just, it's wrong, it's broken, it's broken completely. There's no escaping the fact that this is a completely and utterly broken team and nothing that he's doing is making any difference. Because, you know, you, you don't... It's impossible to think about this um, side and what they're going through from a footballing point of view 
and the form that they've been in and not think that they're not working hard on the training ground, that the manager isn't doing everything that he can do to try and put things right, to get his team back on track, to to build some momentum to the point where we might actually compete for a trophy this season, lest we forget that that's still on the menu, right? So I'm not, I'm not in any way doubting the work that is being put in. What I'm saying is that the work is ineffective. It's not working. Whatever is happening isn't having any tangible effect on what happened, uh, uh, what happens on the pitch. And the little shoots of recovery that you saw, like you say, we didn't necessarily turn a corner, but we could see the corner in the distance, still a little bit away, but we could see that corner there. Now, sure. now you know, you 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 look at that performance last night, and you think it's like going back to the West Brom game, where they're just not. They're not doing it for whatever reason, whether they've lost complete faith in the manager, whether they've ju- they're just so bereft of confidence and belief and rhythm and momentum. You, get, you just look at this situation in general with players and manager and board and think, how the fuck has it come to this? How has it come to this with this football club and the resources it has and the... The, the stature it has and the the ability it should have to be a truly competitive football club and you look at it and you think it's just a f- it's a mess just a mess yeah and it comes from people taking their hands off the wheel basically I mean the word I keep coming back to is, is sleepwalking it feels like our, our fate is obvious and we're just staggering towards it you know without any kind of arrest without any kind of attempt to change direction I mean it's like we are inexorably on this path to, <laughs> to doom and uh, yeah it, it, I mean one of the things Carragher said last night was that the players chucked it he said he felt like it was like watching you know the Chelsea team under Jose Mourinho mm. last season do, do, do you put any store in that do you think it's possible that the reason these performances are so insipid is that the players want a change of manager themselves I think the thing with Mourinho was that he behaved in such a way that the players disliked him. I think it was really obvious that he fell out with the players, that he, you know, whatever went on with uh, the club doctor, um, his bizarre ranting on Sky Sports, putting the blame on the players, you know, never taking any responsibility himself. I think those Chelsea players really grew to dislike Jose Mourinho. I think that was obvious in the way that they played, and they pretty much down tools. Players like Costa, players like Hazard, players like Fabregas. They they just didn't perform for him, and I think they didn't perform on purpose. This, even if they're not performing, doesn't feel quite like that to me. It doesn't feel like they dislike Arsene Wenger, but what it feels like is that whatever effectiveness Arsene Wenger had as a coach or whatever his ability to get his message through to players is gone. And I think the players understand that that is gone. Or maybe it's players, maybe it's players who just don't want to listen, who think that they're better than they are, who think that they're, they don't need to be coached, who think they can just coast, who can go along. I, I don't know, but I don't think it's quite the same as the Chelsea situation. But there's no question that they didn't, they, they're, they're not performing as a collective. Yeah. I, I think that uh, you, the Chelsea situation is a bit different because, as you say, Mourinho's got that abrasive personality that mm. was always going to force things to a head. And in some respects, that's kind of the problem with Arsenal because 
Arsene Wenger has not got that type of personality. He's got a type of personality to placate and manage people and keep things going. Mm. And some, and, so, and in some ways, that's what allows this situation to fester and fester. Mourinho, as bad as it got, it was always going to end sooner rather than later because in those situations, he becomes combative with his players. Whereas Wenger is kind of on side with his players and that becomes a kind of permissive environment for the, the sort of shit we saw last night. Yeah. I think... And that's almost scarier. I mean, I don't think the players are throwing Wenger under the bus. I just think they don't really understand. I mean, how many of them have had experience of a situation like this before? A lot of them have been at Arsenal for since they were very, very young. You know, have they ever been fighting for a manager's future before? I'm not sure that that many of them have. Yeah. Uh, or they, they've been at top clubs like Real Madrid and Barcelona and not necessarily been in, in this kind of situation. So I think it's as much them just being unaccustomed and unaware and mollycoddled over the years so that, you know, they don't they don't know what to do. They mm. don't know how to produce in this environment. Yeah, you do wonder maybe if if it's a case that because of the consistency that we've had down the years, that we've always finished in the top four, we finished fourth, we finished third, we finished second, it's just what we do, that in some ways there's an assumption that that is what's going to happen. Regardless of how bad things are, are, are getting, regardless of uh, performances, regardless of results, regardless of what's going on at board level, there is perhaps throughout the entire club an assumption that this is what will happen, simply because it's mm. happened every single season under Arsene Wenger, and that you don't necessarily have to try or you don't have to you don't have to worry about things too much because you know when it comes right down to it we'll finish in the top 4 because we're Arsenal and that is what we do and you know now it's got to the point where I don't think we're going to finish in the top 4 no chance I don't think there's any real chance of us finishing in the top 4 and I think you're right I think they're unable to process or understand the the scenario that they're in that they, to a large extent, have have uh, been responsible for. I know we're you know we we want to talk about maybe individuals or the manager or the board and everything else, but this is a collective mind melt, a collective failure from top to bottom. That nobody has any yeah. real understanding of what it is they need to do in these circumstances. And of course, that expectation that you know we'll do it in the end because we're Arsenal and that's what happens. Of course, that's going to bring about a measure of complacency. Mm. And that performance we saw at Palace was nothing if not complacent. And you'll have to forgive me if I don't feel too sorry for the players when I read sort of the sob stories about them went going over to the fans and the fans telling them they're not fit to wear the shirt. Because frankly, last night, I don't think they were. I don't think they did the minimum. I don't think they did the basics. I don't think they applied themselves like professional players should because they're far better than what they showed. And mm. I, I know that, that I don't put that entirely on them because I think that this kind of malaise is linked to everything in the club. As you've said, it's all connected, but I think we're right to demand more from them as we do from the manager and the board. Yeah, well, it was interesting, wasn't it, that, that you know, having been, obviously, I'm very publicly frustrated with the manager for quite a long time, that the, the focus then turned to the players last night. I mean, what an extraordinary mm. thing to happen, that the ball goes out of play into our own fans and they don't give it back to one of our players. What a thing. Mm. I mean, it's just... Uh, and, you know, the songs, you're not fit to wear the shirt. Um, you know, it can't... It, I'm not saying it's easy for the players to hear that, but it's not easy for the fans to watch that shit week in, week out. 
And I don't want to see anybody get abused. I don't want to see anybody booed or players, um, you know, who are upset because they're booed. I, you know, on a very human level, I don't really want that. But at the end of the day, it's not personal, really. It's not. It's not nah. like if 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 Hector Bellerin came over, uh, he was the example that people used. He came over at the end and tried to applaud the fans, and and you know. Uh, on the one hand, people criticize when the players don't come over and just slink off the pitch. So, to you know, fair play to him for fronting up. But it's not personal to Hector Bellerin if that uh, gesture is met with with jeers or boos after losing 3-0 to Crystal Palace when it could have been 4-0 or 5-0. In a game yeah, that, I- you know, all, all the failings that we've seen this season have resurfaced. You know, that, that it's just an outlet, a sort of um, a conduit through which to express the anger and disenchantment that people feel. Absolutely. And and I think, you know, Bellerin's not had a great year, but I don't think it is personal in that case. I literally think any player who'd gone over at the end of that game yeah. uh, would have been subjected to that treatment. Maybe with the exception of Emi Martinez, simply because he's a young guy playing one of his first Premier League games and he actually did relatively well. You yeah. know, obviously, there was the, the dive for the penalty, but aside from that, he acquitted himself pretty well and was pretty much let down by much more senior pros around him. Any other player, I think, would have had a, a really poor reception. And I, I kind of think I completely empathise with those fans. I mean, as painful as it is for us to watch it at home uh, via Sky or, or what have you, when you pay your money and you travel to the game... I think the least you can expect is that the team plays with some kind of commitment or some kind of spirit and they just wilted, you know, at the first possible opportunity. Mm. So, and it felt like a bit of a watershed moment, I think. You're on the team like that, so you're not fit to wear the shirt. And hearing audibly on the television cameras, fans chanting, you know, we want Wenger out or Asamenga, we want you to go. That, that feels like a real significant thing to me. I know it's the away fans rather than the home fans um, and there's a little bit of a different attitude against, but that I don't know what did you make of that? Look I mean it, it just sums up everything that people are people are thinking at this moment in time you know mm. it, it is time I don't think there's any at, at another football club I think Arsene Wenger would have been sacked or would be sacked today mm. that's that's what I think would happen Given the Even w- at Manchester United, you know, who, who, uh, you know, are held up as a kind of parallel to Arsenal. You know, they like to put faith in a man and they like to stand by their man. They did, you know, I think they would be ruthless at this stage because they behave like a big club. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is it. I don't think Arsenal are a normal football club. That's something I, I said in the blog today. We're not a normal football club simply because we have this manager who's been there for 21 years. No other football mm-hmm. club has that in the Premier League. Not anymore. Not since uh, Ferguson left. And he left on his own terms. Let's remember, he decided when it was that, that he was going to go. Um, you know, I think he, he, would be, he would be out of a job at every other Premier League club because of not just because of what's happening on the pitch, but because of all of it, because of the weight of it, because of how long it's been going on, because of how great the grand swell of anger is, because of how damaging it is to the football club, to the relationship, you know, the very fundamental relationship between a football club and its fans is being damaged week after week after week. And I think 
Arsene Wenger is like an old boxer who thinks he's still got one more chance at the title, who doesn't doesn't quite understand that he can't do it anymore. Maybe he's understanding mm-hmm. now. But there are others that are standing by who need to take him to one side and say, look, it's, you know, it's time. Throw in the towel. If it was a boxing match last night, the towel Absolutely. would have been thrown in. But there's nobody to do it. There's nobody to take any responsibility. And the the uh, the stewardship or the ownership of Stan Kroenke is, as many people said, when he became the majority shareholder, you know, we looked at it and we thought, well, look, it's better. He's kind of a hands-off owner. He'll let the people who know and understand football do what it is that they need to do. But that now in itself is a problem. They said Kroenke's teams are mediocre. They don't win things, really. They don't compete. They don't challenge. And here we are. We have another one of his teams who fall into into that bracket and it's it's the the willingness the cowardice of the board not to do anything about it that is playing a big part in all this because people feel like as much as people want change i'm sure people also feel quite powerless the only thing that people the only thing left for fans to do, fans who have season tickets and fans who go away, uh, you know, up and down the uh, the length of the UK and go to European games, they go to game after game, and uh, the only thing that they feel like they, they can make a point with is by not going, is by not renewing their season tickets, is by not turning up at games, is by denying themselves something that they love and something that has been part of their lives for God knows how long. Because you grow up an Arsenal fan, it becomes part and parcel of your your life, your 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 existence. You're weak. Yeah. You're weak. You know. Okay, for some people it's too much, but for most people it's just a big part of their week. And there are people now who feel the only point that they can make is not to go, is to is to give up on something that's been part of their lives for such a long time. And it's down as much to Arsene Wenger. It's down to this board and the owner, and the chief executive who have allowed this situation to just get more and more rotten. And it feels rotten. Oh, absolutely. It's rotten to, to its core now. I mean, it's it stinks, the whole thing. And, you know, you're right. To save your passion, you must give up your passion. What kind of a perverse situation is that? Yeah. And, and we were warned about Stan Kroenke and, you know, maybe we didn't, maybe we didn't give it enough credence at the time. I don't think I did. I, I would hold my hands up to that. And I think I was so worried about uh, the alternative in the shape of Alisher Usmanov that maybe I was a bit too too welcoming of him. But, you know, people think of a uh, an Arsene Wenger team as being kind of just good enough to be among the elite, you know, just on the fringes of the top four. Actually, that's the hallmarks of a, a Stan Kroenke team just doing enough. And mm. that's what we've become. Another Kroenke franchise another cronky club who who do the minimum and don't have that impetus you know to go on and achieve things in a sporting sense mm. i must congratulate the sky cameraman who finally ended the the where's wally like search for ivan gazidis <laughs> last night yeah well done uh, found him well yeah. spotted i don't know how they did that it was it was late on in the game. I imagine they'd spent the entire game trying to locate him, and then yeah. uh, there he was, motionless, of course. Uh, 
not wearing his gag though, which is odd, you know, <laughs> he'd have his gag around his mouth. But I, yeah, um, I mean, I must say when he appeared on Scream, I, so I, it, it certainly raised my heart rate a little because I, I, the, the, the silence and the inaction is unforgivable, I think. At it this is, point. it Absolutely is. Absolutely unforgivable. You know, as, as I, who, what, what other club? Sorry, you go, you go. No, no, you go Go ahead. Well, I was going to say is that, you know, you say no other club would allow this relationship between the, the fans and the club to break down to this extent. And that's not strictly true. But the, the clubs who have are ones with owners who are sort of universally deplored in football. You know, I'm thinking of situations like what happened at Newcastle. Uh, and I feel like genuinely Arsenal is going that direction. I spoke to a journalist for a piece um, from The Times. And he was based up in uh, the northeast, And he was talking about the parallels he could see as a Newcastle fan between what happened there and what is starting to happen at Arsenal. Mm. And that's in no way to draw a parallel between Arsene Wenger and Alapardieu. I love Arsene Wenger. I would never dare to do that. But the the disaffection between owner and fans, I think, will, will approach those levels before long. And that's incredibly sad and infuriating. Really. Well, well, it is, because you know what? The, the problem is, uh, as I see it, is that... <sighs> Arsene Wenger is a man who has done amazing things for Arsenal Football Club, perhaps not lately. Um, you know, we've won a couple of FA Cups and you can hold up his consistency as, as an achievement. Uh, and I think in time it will be seen as that. But, you know, he's also given us the Invincibles and Thierry Henry and Patrick Vieira and Robert Pires and two doubles and amazing football and a brilliant rivalry with Manchester United. And some of the greatest times that I've enjoyed as an Arsenal fan, some of the best football I've ever seen as an Arsenal fan Whatever people think of Arsene Wenger now, you cannot take those things away from him. And in the very short term, there's going to be a lot of frustration with him. And it's difficult to it's difficult to see the good things that he's done because we're so focused on how how poor things are at this moment in time. But when that like very acute anger dies down and with the passing of time, people will look at Arsene Wenger fondly. They will remember him as a man whose contribution to Arsenal Football Club should be remembered and should be lauded and should be told in stories and histories to your kids. And I remember seeing my team go unbeaten throughout a whole season. It was amazing. Nobody else has done that. Those are achievements that cannot be taken away from him. Take him out of the equation. And what have we got? We've got, an, we've got a majority shareholder that pretty much nobody likes. We've got a chief executive who who nobody knows what the fuck he's thinking because he will not speak in public about what is going on. Perhaps he's emasculated. Perhaps he's caught between Kroenke and Wenger. Maybe then, maybe you should just fucking have some balls and come out and fucking say, well, that's it. I can't deal with this job. We've got Sir Chips, who's a figurehead from the past. We've got Josh Kroenke on the board who does what? Nobody fucking knows. So when you take Arsene Wenger away from this, even in the very short term, as people will go, good, it's time for a new manager, what you're left with is a collection of people that nobody has got any trust in and has got no goodwill towards. And that's that's the 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 future of this football club. And it's it's kind of weird and also a bit scary that that's what it is. Of 
course, and it and it makes the <laughs> responsibility and the pressure on any incoming manager absolutely huge because they they would be expected to to fill that void. You're right that Arsene Wenger will be remembered fondly. I mean, there'll be a statue of Arsene Wenger. There might be a stand named after Arsene Wenger. Genuinely, he he will be remembered as a, a legend of yeah, the club. Of course. Redeem. Uh, I'm fairly sure of that I think it's obviously very sad what's happening now and I think it could get worse before it gets better but even if he was sacked to be honest even if he was sacked he would still be remembered as a great manager I mean I I always feel loath to mention other managers because it feels like I'm drawing a direct comparison which Mm. I'm not but you know Brian Clough, Clough his career ended in fairly you know unceremonious circumstances but it doesn't take away from what he achieved do you know what I mean he's yeah. still lauded rightfully and I think if Arsene Wenger was dismissed now there would be a period of well you know maybe for the best but so, pretty soon after people would look back on his achievements with the reverence they deserve Yeah, and uh, I don't think anyone will say this same for pretty much anybody else associated with the club in this period um, but you know I no, well, I mean, at I least, just, at least I, if I, it what? does. Sorry, just to cut across you there. I mean, sorry, yeah. They then, they then have a huge amount to prove. We can't maybe say maybe when Arsene Wenger goes, or if Arsene Wenger leaves, or if Arsene Wenger is sacked. Okay, we don't have any goodwill towards Ivan Gazidis, but let me just uh, create this hypothetical situation where Gazidis. Uh, freed from the yoke of Arsene Wenger, goes out and gets a director of football and changes the structures of the club and brings in a new manager and the new manager brings some success back to the club. At that point, you could say, okay, well then he, he has at least proven that he's he's good at his job, but that's what they have in front of them to do. And it's whether or not anyone believes that that's going to happen or be the case, you know? Well, that is kind of the vestige of hope that I have is that Gazidis is, you know, has his hands tied basically, and that he's more capable and more ambitious than we give him credit. Yeah, I just worry that, you know, at the end of the day, is he going to be Stan's man, and and how much is he going to be prepared to push back against an owner who seems satisfied with relative mediocrity? Yeah, and and how much is Cronky going to allow him to to operate in a way that? that will help bring success back because it's going to require a big investment financially to make that happen. Well, it's going to require yeah, the- t- top top executives, top administrators, a top manager and some top players. Now is Cronky prepared to do that? Well, uh, I sincerely doubt it. And I think that's what's worrying is that at the moment we go, well, Gazidis can't make his decisions because he's beholden to Arsene Wenger. But once Arsene Wenger goes... Gazidis becomes beholden to Kroenke and the, the chief will, uh, the, the chief decision maker at the club stops being Arsene Wenger and potentially becomes Stan Kroenke and I think that's arguably an even more worrying situation considerably more worrying yeah that's exactly it they they don't have anyone to hide behind as soon as Wenger goes they've got nobody to, to hide behind because he is front and centre he is the man who takes all the flack he is the guy who uh, talks after every game. He talks before the games. He uh, he answers the questions, perhaps not to everybody's liking, but he's still there. He doesn't hide from those responsibilities, whereas the others most certainly have. Now, as you said, the one little bit of hope that I think we can have, I've, I mean, I'm not necessarily confident about this, is that 
when Arsene Wenger goes, it allows Gazidis, it liberates him in a way so he can put into place these plans that he has or he thinks will work for the football club. Now, I think that's a bit of a stretch, to be honest, but, you know, benefit of the doubt time because something has got to change one way or the other. But without Wenger there, they've got nothing to hide behind. And then they will be the ones uh, in the firing line. They're going to be the ones who people judge, not the manager. Of course, but I've said this before, but I find it extraordinary that they can't see that there's such an easy win for them here. Like if Gazidis and Kroenke are like, oh, our popularity is waning here. We're in danger of coming under some serious flack. All they need to do really is take a hard line with the manager and say, look, Arsene, you've been a fantastic servant to this club, but we feel your time is up. All they need to do is then revamp the club, introduce a direct football, introduce a manager, and almost <clears throat> irrespective of if that proves successful or not, I think showing that level of ambition and stewardship would win them a huge groundswell of support among the fans. So well, personally, say, yeah. I find it extraordinary that they don't... They can't see that and don't do it just from sort of selfish point of view, you know? Yeah, yeah, certainly. You know, it would it would at least give them the benefit of the doubt until such time as we saw the fruits of, of those uh, implementations. I mean, what do you make of stories? Yeah. There have been stories about how there's a boardroom split, et cetera, et cetera. You know, to me, that sounded a little bit like self-preservation, um, that the, the, these stories only suit one or two people, you know, um, who have been throughout this uh, whole thing the, the most ineffective um, in terms of the, the leadership that they've shown at the club. I don't know. It's I mean, it's becoming so difficult to read. And I've spent a bit of time around the club the last couple of weeks and talking to people. I mean, I haven't a clue. I haven't a clue genuinely what's going on. My, I actually don't think the situation will be addressed until the end of the season. That's that's the way I see it now. I just think that, much like in 2014, they will wait until the last possible moment before finally calling it one way or the other. Oh, I, yeah. I think that, uh, yeah, I mean... That's what you, that's what you uh, think I, will happen. That's what I think will happen. I think we'll wait until the end of the season and uh, literally a decision will be made after the last game. What, Hopefully that's the FA Cup final, mm, but who knows? What do you think should happen? <laughs> Genuinely. Well, I think... I don't know. I did. Say, I think after the West Brom game, when we went into the international break, I speculated that it might be better to put somebody else in charge of this team until the end of the season, just to give them the best chance of making the top four. I almost wonder with another three games gone, if that's even worthwhile anymore. Mm. Um, Calling Gus Hiddink. Yeah, exactly. I mean, honestly, I think that it might be the kick up the arse the team kind of needs to, mm. to help them. Because I, I, look, I don't feel confident that we're going to get top four, but I think there is a chance to do it. I think that there are enough weaknesses in the other teams, enough vulnerabilities in, say, a Liverpool, to make me think that it is possible, but not with us playing like we are. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure about that. You know, I looked at the, I was watching the Liverpool-Stoke game at the weekend and, you know, Stoke were 1-0 up and I thought, OK, well, that's good. And Liverpool, away from home, at Stoke, a difficult ground, as we know, scored twice, won the game. I think that was a, a big result for Liverpool. I think that's the result that will that will keep them ahead of us, that will provide them with the belief that they need. And I think had perhaps we won against Crystal Palace, maybe we might have had a bit of momentum to, to try and catch them. But I think now the, the defeat, the manner of the defeat, 
the the fallout from it, the the clear issues between fans and players, and fans and manager and fans and board. You know, I think it's a, I think it's an absolute mess. I would be inclined uh, to to accept a situation where Arsene Wenger said, "I'm I'm leaving." at the end of the season. I'm not going to leave now because who do you put in charge? Who do you put? Steve Bold? I don't think so. Who else is there? No. Who else is there behind the scenes that, that can do that job? Uh, I, I'm not sure there's anybody there who who would be the, the right person to lead the team into the final games of the season. I think maybe if Arsene Wenger said that he was going to go at the end of the season, that there would be then at least a clarity over what's happening. We've got a line in the sand. We know where the season is going to go. We know how it's going to finish. We know what's got to happen in the summer. Some preparation uh, preparations can start uh, uh, behind the scenes for that. And the players perhaps then can, uh, you know, do more, row in behind a manager who who has given them all so much, who uh, has given them pretty much all his unfettered faith down the years. Maybe they'll want to see him go out on a high. They won't want to see him go out on more of a low. And they'll also, <clears throat> excuse me, they'll also be aware that uh, a new manager coming in might be looking at what these players are doing ahead of next season and deciding their futures. So <clears throat> that's it. Yeah, that's I think that might be... This. I think that might be a good solution. As soon as you say Arsene's going, yeah, as soon as you say Arsene's going, suddenly everyone's future is up for debate, isn't Mm. it? And the players have that extra bit of motivation to impress. I mean, to be honest, even if this season descended into a kind of bizarre farewell tour for Arsene Wenger, at least that would be (laughs) kind of memorable and more fun. And I, I would almost... I would almost sort of take that in the knowledge that, you know what, maybe the results aren't going to be great, but let's spend six or eight games or whatever it is, you know, enjoying and celebrating this this great man rather than watch this kind of doomed, yeah. I don't know, pursuit of something that's slipping away. It, it's, it is actually sad to watch. As you say, the old fighter, you know, looking for that last knockout punch or, or, or struggling on when really someone in his corner needs to throw the towel in. Yeah. It's, it's painful and, and I would rather celebrate the guy for the next eight games than A, watch him struggle and B, fear what another two years of this might be like. Oh, listen, you know, there's there's no, I, I, don't, I just don't understand how that could even still be a thing. I don't know how anybody at this football club, including Arsene Wenger at this point, could think that another two years is the right decision for, for the team, for the club, for him, for the fans for for anyone i just don't i can't even get my head around how that would be a consideration at this point it's surely clearly obvious to everybody that something has got to change it's not whether or not something has to change it's when it has to change and at the the latest it can happen is the end of the season and i do think that if there was some clarity provided now then at least it might it might generate a sort of togetherness between all the the rival factions, if you like. And it's terrible to think of everybody being at odds with everybody else, isn't it? You know, that the, the fans feel let down by the players and maybe the players feel unhappy because of the treatment they're getting from the fans. And I'm not saying, you know, that's a 
not something that we should be concerned about, you know, boohoo to them and all that. But, you know, it would uh, at least bring people together knowing that at the end of the season, this is going to happen and we're going to go in a different direction. It's the uncertainty. It's the it's the lack of clarity. It's the unwillingness and the obfuscation and the fact that nobody will talk about it. That is uh, that is the big problem. And un- until that is addressed properly and in a meaningful way, it's just not going to get any better. I mean, I- I'm not on board with the the sections of the fan base who say they welcome <clears throat> defeats now. Because, oh no, no, I'm not. Yeah. No, I don't. No, I'm not. I don't agree with that at all. No, no, I'm not suggesting you are either. I'm just saying that as agonising as I found what happened at Selhurst Park. I and I feel almost ashamed to admit this, but there was part of me too that was like, well, uh, one silver lining for me is that I feel like, well, at least surely, surely this will now force the situation to a head. Mm. Surely this now demands clarity. But maybe I will even be let down in that hope. Mm. Well, we'll have, we'll have to wait and see. I mean, I think, uh, as you said, a normal football club would address this in some significant way today uh, after a, a defeat and a performance like that last night. Um, it's still very early in the day. It's only 10 to 10 when we're recording this, so who knows what might happen. But uh, like you, I'm, I'm not going to hold my breath. But look, we're going to take a break here. We're going to come back and uh, do your questions and more in part two right after this. Welcome back to the Arscast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer the questions that you sent to us on Twitter, at GunnarBlog and at ArsBlog. Uh, again, I forgot to put it on Facebook, so apologies once more, Facebook friends. Um, a lot of the questions that we've got are very similar in theme to a lot of the stuff that we've discussed already. So mm. uh, on that basis, I'm going to let you go first. <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear. Okay. Uh let me find something that's uh a slightly different tack. Um oh, look, let's look. have this one. All right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh this is from Jamie Dubon, who's at Jamie90Dubon. Mm. And he asks I would like to know whether you care if Meza Urzel is at the club next season. I used to be his biggest fan, but I'm at my wits' end with him. Yeah, um, I get why people would be at their wits' end with Mesut Ozil and maybe even with Alexis Sanchez. Wasn't it interesting that Jamie Carragher singled out Alexis as well? He said, I think Alexis yeah. has been awful. And the the difference, I suppose, is that Alexis at least looks busy. But, uh, you know, the number of times he gave the ball away, he's such a weird player in the sense that he, he was our most dangerous player. He put in some really good passes uh, at times, mm. particularly towards Bellerin at the back post, uh, which looked dangerous. But, you know, there are other times where he just gives the ball away really carelessly. And, you know, at this moment in time, I, I'm finding it difficult to care about any of them, really. But what I of do course. think is that it's it's 
it's kind of pointless focusing on individuals when the issues are so much greater. It's a it's a collective problem. I think the the structure of the team, the the form of the team, the way it's set up, the way it doesn't really appear to know what it's supposed to be doing. Um, you know, did you hear um, Allardyce talking? After the yeah. game, and and he said, "Well, we know that Bellerin and Monreal they like to play as wingers. So if we can get the ball quickly and hit it towards the center halves, we can put them under pressure. You know, the the these flaws within our game that are so obvious to I know uh, Sam Allardyce, Sam Allardici, of course, is a, a tactical genius. Um, so he probably worked that one out ahead of everyone else. But it's not difficult to look at this team and f- and and figure out how you can expose them and make them look." Poor, uh, so I'm I'm loath to really point the finger at individuals because I I think you're hard pressed to find any player over the last two or three months who has been playing anywhere near as well as they can. Nobody. Absolutely, I, I think that's the thing, isn't it? I think for a start on Allardyce, I thought he was. He was taking the piss there, wasn't he? I mean, he knew he knew what he was doing in laying bare Arsenal's weaknesses in such public fashion. It was oh, horrible to watch. But, I mean, it didn't stop what he was saying being true. And as for Ozil, I think, you know, it's funny, when things were going well, we were so anxious about the contract situations for him and Alexis. But right now, the team's in such a collective mess that I guess, I guess that we don't really give that much of a shit about the destiny of any of the players because we sort of you know without wanting to throw the baby out with the bathwater is the sense of well it's all broken it doesn't feel like it's as precious to us anymore all I would say is that Mm. if there is going to be a new coach I guess I'd want him to have a squad with the most talented players available to him and Ozil remains one of those you know yeah certainly you could you can't argue with the talent but perhaps the the application or the implementation or the commitment at times has not been what it should be. And whether that mm. whether that's uh, a big part of why we're in the mess we're in or why we're in the in the mess we're in is why he is a bit like that, it, it's hard to say. It's six of one, half a dozen of the other. But yeah, look, I think if, if a new manager is going to come in and rebuild, then you want uh, good players, you know. Think back, James, to before Christmas. We're on a 19-game unbeaten run, and the futures of Mesut Ozil and Alexis Sanchez are, without question, there's a unanimity to people's opinions. Everybody wanted them to stay. Like you know, there's always going to be one or two dissenters, but the vast majority of people wanted Alexis to stay, and they wanted Mesut Ozil to stay and sign new deals. And here we are a few months later because things have been going badly and people are a little more indifferent uh, towards Ozil and and even to Alexis uh, to a certain extent. But, you know, if we win eight or nine games in a row at the start of next season, people will be going, well, we've got to keep these players. You know, so it's the circumstances play a part, you know. So yeah, um, it, it's it's easy to hate everything when things are going badly. But, you know, when it comes right down to it, regardless of who is the manager next season, the vast majority of the players who are at the club today will be at the club next season. There's not yeah. going to be 15 new players coming in and 15 going out. People can forget about that. So it's going to be more or less the same players. And that's, uh, that's you know, going to be the job for the new manager. If there is a new manager. 
if there is. Um, okay, mm. your question. All right, uh, Misha Watson wants to know. Wenger wants to keep our British core together. Do you agree? <laughs> um, not particularly. No, I, I found it kind of an odd angle coming out of the press conference the other day because. For a start, I'm not sure we have a British core. We just have some British players. <laughs> uh, and while I like the idea of a British core, I don't necessarily like the idea of those players forming it for this club <laughs> moving forward. Yeah. Does that make sense? Um, yeah. yeah, like, I, I mean, he sort of cited the likes of Kieran Gibbs, you know, and... Well, he Carl talked. Jenkinson yeah, he talked. I don't think he mentioned Jenkinson, but he talked particularly about Oxley Chamberlain. You know, he said it's it's vital for Oxley Chamberlain to stay, and I can see some logic in that. Even if you know Oxley Chamberlain has been a bit underwhelming, I can see why after uh, five or six years at a club developing a player at 23 years of age, it might be a little too soon to let him go because clearly his best years as a footballer are going to be ahead of him. I think that's mm. normal for for a player to mature and. Uh, mid to, to late 20s that's generally what happens but to say that it's really important that we keep Kieran Gibbs is it really important that we keep Kieran Gibbs he's played started three Premier League games for us this season that's it He's clearly yeah. a guy who is on the fringes because he's not considered good enough to play regularly for us so why is it important that we keep him why is it not more important that we find an upgrade Is that not the most well, important the, thing? The reason that it's important that we keep him is the homegrown quota. Well, <laughs> probably. yeah. Uh, yeah. If you're in the Champions League. Uh, of course, if you don't go into European competition, there's there's less of an onus on that. But the, doesn't, uh, don't Premier League clubs have to consist of a number of... I actually don't know. I th I'm not sure. I think it's the UEFA thing. I, I, it's certainly more stringent in the Champions League, I believe. Um, but yeah, I'd have to look that up about the Premier League squads, the 25-man squad. Yeah, I think they do actually in the 25-man squad have to have homegrown players. I'm just going to either, hmm. either way. Either um, way, yeah, I, I don't. I mean, look, the the British core to me feels like a bit of a failed experiment you know it's something that we announced with much heraldry a few years ago there were all those simultaneous contracts signed mm. and the vast majority of those players have failed to live up to their potential subsequently so you know forgive me but I, I'm not too too precious about that particular uh, contingent of players staying at the club yeah uh, eight eight players in each 25 man Premier League squad have got to be homegrown right Now, that doesn't mean they well, have you know, to the be British. The likes of Bellerin would qualify, exactly. Yeah. Martinez maybe um, would qualify. I, you know, they've, they've, they've got yeah, to have come through the academy, you see. So that's, that's the thing. Be. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So I think we'd be all right to do it. I don't think, you know, keeping Kieran Gibbs is quite as important as uh, the manager's suggesting. Um, so, yeah, I, li I like the idea of a British core. It's just not, maybe not this one. Mm. <laughs> um, I've got a question from at... Varney Jake, who is Jake Varney. Uh, and he asks, why is Wenger playing Alexis on the left? He's ineffective in that position and Welbeck does more for the team out there. Don't know. 
it is a bit weird, right? Because Alexis at centre forward was quite an exciting project in the first half of the season. It just seems to have been pretty much ditched entirely. Yeah, it's weird. Because it was the best football we played this season was in around uh, September, October, where Alexis played most of the games as a centre forward. If you uh, remember correctly, there was a lot of talk about this fluid front four, this movement that we had. You know, you look back at the game against Chelsea and what worked was Alexis as centre forward. We had Walcott on the right. We had, uh, I think it was Iwobi playing on the left that day and uh, Mesut Ozil in behind. And this four, these four players, the movement, the combinations, it was, it was the best we've played this season. And I know perhaps there were some injury issues, but I don't understand why we don't, we've, we've moved away from it. Um, I, 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 is I, it, I don't I mean, know. Is it because Alexis is off? And they don't want to build a team around him anymore. Well, what what do you do instead? Build a team that doesn't work, which is you know, I mean, <laughs> uh, that's, seemingly so. Yeah. Well, that's what we've done. I mean, that is that is the height of cutting off your nose to to spite your face, if that's what the 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 thinking is. I mean, I know Arsene Wenger's got a bit of previous in, in that regard, doesn't he? You know, when he didn't play Arshavin in the FA Cup. Uh, mm-hmm. against Chelsea because he wanted the team to, you know, understand that they could win without Arshavin. It's like, wh- what? Um, so if it's a case that he wants the team to be able to f- to perform without Alexis, just don't play Alexis at all, rather than play him in a position where he is less effective. I think it's fair to say he's played his most uh, effective football as a, a centre-forward this season. So, you know, I, d- I don't really understand it, particularly as Welbeck can play on the left-hand side. He is well capable of playing in the wide positions. He's done that throughout his career. And uh, I, I don't uh, I don't quite get it, no. Any theories yourself? I mean, no, it's hard to understand because think of Danny Welbeck coming back in that cup game against Southampton. He was playing off the left-hand side in that game mm. and was absolutely outstanding out there. And the system that we had with a Woby on the left, Walcott on the right, like through the middle, seems so well-balanced at one stage. And I think Welbeck is really capable of emulating the kind of football Iwobi plays, drifting in field, linking things up. He's struggling a little bit as a centre-forward. You know, I, I do feel for him a bit, there was a stat on Sky with an hour gone last night that Benteke had had more touches than any other Palace player and Welbeck had had, mm. uh, you know, the, the fewest touches at, yeah. at Arsenal. And we we just weren't getting him involved. We weren't supplying him. Uh, and I think, you know, some of that's on him too, but it, it isn't really clicking. And I just don't understand why Alexis through the middle has been thrown to one side like that. It was the most, it was the best football we played, not just this season, but I think for a couple of years, it was the most exciting yeah. Arsenal front line, you know, in, in recent memory. And I think... Something odd is going on. I guess my theory is kind of that Arsene doesn't want to invest in playing Alexis there if it's not going to go beyond this season because I think he is already thinking about and planning on next season and Mm. that's probably going to be without Alexis Sanchez. Anyway, (laughs) Uh, there's there's something to get our heads around. Okay, here's one from S at Atwood10 who says, while he's obviously a cunt, with the benefit of hindsight, was Van Persie correct in his analysis of the direction of Arsenal? Yeah. I saw someone sent me the quote from Robin Van Persie, I think from this sort of infamous letter during the game last night. 
And I, I that don't was have nice it to... of them. Someone who didn't like you at all. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Jesus. I don't have it in front of me now, but it was something like after after you know long conversation with Arsene Wenger, which I will keep private out of respect for the man. Mm. Uh, we fundamentally disagreed on the direction Arsenal Football Club should take in the next few years, and the inference at the time was that that was about transfer policy wasn't it yeah uh, i think that that you know rob van persie wanted big big money to be spent and i think at the time we didn't really necessarily have quite the same capacity to do it that we that we do now mm. um so maybe it was more justified from Wenger's point of view and also we are now spending money i mean let's not Let's not try and hide behind, you know, the Emirates Stadium move. We are spending more money than we ever have. Mm. £100 million pretty much this summer, similar sum a couple of years ago. So was Robin Van Persie right? I mean, I guess with hindsight, he, he kind of was, but I think the situation was more difficult when he left. I mean, that was a good five, six years ago now. And I think... Things have changed since then, and mm. I think if he was if he was at the club this season and said that this season, I think he'd be more justified because it's more worrying to be have the financial backing and yet still be seemingly regressing. Mm. You know? Yeah. Are you going to forgive Rob Van Persie? No, fuck <laughs> him. So, Absolutely not. No way. Uh, you know, I like you say. I think circumstances were different. I don't think Van Persie's statement was anything other than a piece of self-serving bullshit that he tried to sell to people um, to ease the criticism on him. I thought it was it was quite cynical in that regard. You know, he may well have had a point, and I think, you know, lots of people would say that the way things were going at that time maybe didn't lend itself to a club that was going to win the title. But, you know... <sighs> Yeah, we're spending now. The problems are the problems aren't about how much money we spend. That's that's not the issue anymore. And uh, yeah, you know, Van Persie said what he said for his own benefit, not for the benefit of Arsenal in any way. Not to not to stand up for the football club that he supposedly loved. Not to try and do anything other than curry favor with the fans. And I, you know, I can. I'm not. I'm not giving him a pass on that one. But uh, yeah, fuck that. Okay, guy. well look, look, this is a, this is not, this is a. <laughs> you're right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all, it's all got to you. It's all got to you. It's too much. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I get it. Um, this is an interesting question that sort of borders on the philosophical, really. But so it's not an easy one. Brace yourselves. Um, it's from Christian Stromberg, and the, Christian asks, "What is the club?" I've always said in rough patches before, at least we have the club. But what is the club? That is a a tremendous question. The club is a business. The club is a franchise. The club is a marketing tool. The club is part of a portfolio. The club is a long way from what it was. And that's not to blame everything on the club because I think the modern game and modern football dictates that things have changed fundamentally from the time that I started 
supporting Arsenal Football Club. You know what I remember really vividly as as a kid that somehow when I lived in in Yorkshire, we had like a London... No, you know what it was? There was like a Rothmans stats book that you used to get. It used to tell you Mm -hmm. like about all all the football clubs and it was Arsenal, highest ever attendance, highest ever win, highest defeat, you know, all, all this kind of stuff, the record. And, but it had the club information and it had the phone number of Arsenal. It had the phone number of Arsenal. <laughs> and it was maybe a five-digit number. Maybe I had to dial 01 to dial London from where I was in Yorkshire. I can remember picking up the phone and dialing Arsenal Football Club when I was about eight years of age. Not saying anything but being absolutely amazed that I could just call up Arsenal Football Club. It was amazing. Yeah. And and th- that that sort of thing is gone, obviously because I'm older, because I understand how, how things work. But I think there is a very clear difference between what the club is and what people want the club to be and what people want from the club. There are still things that we can look at and the way that Arsenal do certain things and and be uh, quite proud of those things. But there are other things that it's very difficult to identify with. Who gives a fuck who our washing machine sponsor is in Indonesia? And that's not to criticize Indonesia or fans in Indonesia, but simply the the concept of having these commercial sponsorship partners that are held up as some kind of thing that we should be into. Why? Why should we give a fuck who our crisp sponsor is in Australia or whatever? You know, unless Tamon Ruffles get involved. Unless, obviously. of course. Of course, in which case all will be forgiven. But what I mean is that the things that the club now hold up to us as being something to be proud of, operating profits, sponsorship deals, uh, kit deals, naming rights, cash in the bank, all those kind of things that they they hold up as examples of why this is a well-run, super efficient business, a big, massive corporation with turnover in the hundreds of millions of pounds. And this is something that Arsenal fans should, should get behind. It's something that they can, you know, net spend. Let's talk about fuck off with net spend. Fuck off with profits. Fuck off with all of that stuff. Because when it boils right down to it, nobody cares. Because all we want to see is a team that is competitive. I'm not talking about a team that wins every year because if that's the baseline for what you consider acceptable, then you're always going to be disappointed. Yeah. And that that there's far too much focus gone from the football. It's Arsenal Football Club. That's what the club is. It's a football club. It's not a business to most fans. I mean, it is. I mean, in the general sense, it has to operate like that, but we don't see it like that. We shouldn't care about all these financial results. We shouldn't care about how much we're getting from this company or that company. It doesn't make any difference to, to any of us, really. It doesn't make anybody's ticket any cheaper. It doesn't make it easier to watch games like we saw at Crystal Palace. Well, we lost to Crystal Palace, but we've got a fantastic new speaker sponsor in the US or whatever it is. You know, the the what connects people to the club is disappearing. 
it's disappearing. And it's a football club in name, but it's a long way from being the football club that we all want it to be. Mm. How's that? That's a very good answer. That's a very good answer to a very difficult question and a very important question, really, because we talk about the club <laughs> losing its identity and it's like, what what is left of that identity? What do we have? What can we hold on to? And what do we want to sustain? Mm. And I think that it is, what it fundamentally boils down to is the emphasis on sport versus the emphasis on business. Mm. And that balance is wrong at Arsenal. Yeah. And has been for some time. Uh, I think that's the crux of it. And I think it's about recalibrating that and uh, giving fans the sense that, you know, the, the sporting ambition matches the the financial ambition. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a relatively straightforward thing to change, but it's one that involves a degree of economic sacrifice. And we don't know if we have an owner who's prepared to do that. Mm. And... For a long time, it felt as if we didn't have a manager who wasn't necessarily prepared to do that, you know, who was so concerned about the the, the club's financial situation that I think there was an element of sacrifice on the sporting side. But I don't think people are prepared to accept that anymore, especially now that we're back on a secure footing. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, that's what needs to happen. Um, whether it does, you know, your guess is as good as mine. Yeah. I don't know how much more, uh, you know, I can talk about this, to be honest, because I feel like I'm at the point where I'm just going to repeat myself because I'm looking up and down the questions and thinking, well, is there any, yeah. is there any point? And have we not already said that? Have we not discussed that? It's, um, yeah, it's really difficult. And, you, you know, all you can do is hope at this point that somebody comes to their senses or somebody shows some leadership or decisiveness and takes some action for the benefit of the football club, the football club. Uh, absolutely. I mean, yeah. Uh, and that's what we should stress in terms of coming to their senses. And we're in danger of retreading old ground here, but are we not relying really on Arsene Wenger to be that man who comes to his senses? Mm, yeah, maybe so. Well, I mean, that seems to be the case, doesn't it? Because uh, the, the the board haven't shown that they're interested in playing that part. No, no. But I don't think yeah, yeah. they have the stomach for it. I, I yeah, and I don't know that Arsene Wenger is going to is going to give up. That's the thing. I think the worse it gets, the more he'll feel like he he has to work to try and turn it around. And I don't think he's going to say today, it's time. I don't think that's going to happen either. So I don't know what the fuck is going to happen. I mean, what one of his positive qualities, Arsevenko, is that he is absolutely relentless and you would never describe mm. him as a quitter. And something that has occurred to me in the past couple of weeks is when I think about these kind of, you know, veteran managers, when they eventually call time on their careers, so often it is, and this is not necessarily a new observation, it's something Wenger himself has said, but so often it's because they've got another life that they wish to pursue. That would be personal passions. You know, people talk about Alex Ferguson and his horses. It could mm. be 
a, a family life. You know, it could be that they they want to spend time with other people. They've made promises to wives or what have you about a, a retirement that they have to deliver on. Arsene Wenger says publicly that he's already sacrificed his life mm. for his job. He believes yeah. that that is what he's done. I don't think there's anything outside of this club and this job that could tempt him to walk away anymore. Yeah. I think he's absolutely given over to it. And I just don't think that he will let that go without a fight. So if we are waiting on him to come to his senses, I think we're going to be disappointed. Well, the, well I, I mean, yeah. Yeah. The only thing that might make him make a decision is another job. Like... If if the choice for Arsene Wenger is stay at Arsenal or give up being a football manager, he will stay because he can't see life without being involved in football in some way. But if there is perhaps the opportunity elsewhere or an opportunity that he's interested in or he feels... For an easier life, maybe. <laughs> maybe. Well, it would be an easier life, wouldn't it? It would be an easier life because you're going in somewhere fresh and, you know, change of scenery might just well be a very good thing for him. So that's the only thing that I can think of that will make him say, OK, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll call it a day. And, I, you know, it won't be an English club. I can't see Arsene Wenger managing another English club. Hang on. So what we need to do, scrap, burn all the Wenger out banners, make a load of Wenger in banners and rock up in Paris. <laughs> Stage a protest at PSG for a Wenger in campaign. Should we should we dress up as uh, French people by wearing berets and uh, hanging berets, baguettes under the arms, yeah. str- onions on strings, and Wenger in banners? We, we need to <laughs> we need to dupe the PSG owners uh, into into making that appointment. Yes, uh, foolish billionaires will will show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh dear. Oh well. Okay. Listen, we've got one more. We've got one more from on. Alistair Hughes, who's at. Ali Ali Afro. And he says, what power ballad or other popular song best sums up the situation right now? What power ballad or other popular song? Oh. The first one that sprang to uh, my mind was uh, uh, Alone by Heart. <laughs> maybe is, that, that, is that you? Yeah, maybe. I'm the, the, very personal. Yeah, maybe so. Maybe so. Uh, Broken Wings. By Mr. Mister, that'd be a good one. Oh, that that feels that feels very appropriate. Mm. Um, I mean, I don't know. It's a, it's genuinely a difficult one for even some of the great power ballad artists to pin down. There's a lot of anguish going on here. The final countdown. That's not really a power ballad, though, is it? The final countdown. No, I can't make you love me. I mean, that's. Um, have to get some more ham on ruffles out for that one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the final countdown, I hope so. Yeah. I hope it is the final countdown in a way. Could be um, uh, the Scorpions, the Vind of Change. The Vind of Change. The, the Catalyst for Change. The Catalyst for Change, yeah. Come on, Scorpions, you've got to re-record that one just for uh, for Arsenal fans. Um, probably yeah. Taylor Swift I mean, has written a song night. about this, hasn't she? Taylor Swift must have broken up with a football club or something. 
I mean, I wish we could shake it off, Andrew, but I don't think it's going to be that straightforward. Um, I don't know. I mean, look, if if there are any musicians out there budding power rock artists, surely this is all the f- ammunition you need to, to write the greatest power ballad of all time. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, all the ingredients are there. Unrequited love, broken hearts, misery, pain, no hope. If I could turn back time to 2014. <laughs> 2004. <laughs> I'd walk away then. 2004. Yeah, 2004 would be nice. Um, oh, well. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It's, uh, it's, it's bleak times, guys, but I don't know what to say, really. We've just got to carry on. And Middlesbrough away next. We're so good on the road. I'm sure it'll be fine. I don't even know what to say to that. <laughs> Middlesbrough away, a team that can't score against a team that can't defend. Um, yeah, I just... Yeah. yeah, the stoppable force versus the movable object. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, look, I, I think we've uh, we've put ourselves uh, and the listeners through uh, more than enough misery. So all we can do is thank you very much indeed uh, for bearing with us throughout this. I hope mm. it has been in some way cathartic for you. Uh, I wish we had more answers. I wish we knew what was going on. I wish we could make everything better. But uh, all we can do is say thanks a million for, for listening, as always. And... Uh, um, yeah thanks for listening thanks for the questions um, yeah thanks for not we calling us names know. yeah exactly exactly thanks for not booing us and telling us we're not fit <laughs> to record the podcast <laughs> alright well look I will have an cast on Friday oh joy I'm looking forward to that uh, ahead of a, another Monday night game of course uh, next week so we'll do the cast extra next Tuesday as well um, so until then have as good a week as you can possibly have yes indeed bye bye guys baby don't understand why we can't just hold on to each other's hands this time might be the last fear unless I make it all And blood makes me whole.